152 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Chemotherapy-Induced Cardiomyopathy with Dr. Paul Burridge. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. And if listening to this podcast isn't enough, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, where we do our best to update you on all the latest news in stem cell research as it's happening. Today, we have Dr. Paul Burridge from Northwestern University on the podcast to talk about his work using human iPSCs to model cardiomyopathy and heart failure. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first... Did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? And in fact, our guest today, Paul Burridge, knows all about that. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-specific and gene-edited human pluripotent stem cell lines can be used to model cardiac diseases in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio webinar. Yeah, we're modeling everything in vitro. Now, another thing we're doing in vitro is bringing the in vivo into it, right? With the organoids, we talk about organoids every five minutes. I can't stop talking about organoids. I dream about organoids. Organoids are everywhere. Maybe maybe it's a bit much with the organoids, but it's not going to stop anytime soon. So I'm just jumping on the bandwagon. I'm starting right off with an organoid story, Arun. Are you ready? Let's do it. So this is about the hepatobiliary pancreatic onlage, all right, which is important, obviously. You saw all the tissues that it makes right there in the name, the liver, the gallbladder, bile duct, pancreas. It's an onlage with a lot of potential, right? And all, to get to all those little lineages, you have to have all the diversification of cell types in C2, in complex, talking to each other. We talked about this a last episode with the neuroids, you know, we're getting into a stage now where we want to see the higher order structures. And this is a story from Takanori Takebe at Cincinnati Children's that's focused on that, right? So this HPB onlage, it's first specified at the boundary between the foregut and the midgut. And diversification of all those HPB lineages is mediated by the adjacent mesenchymal signals, all right? So this is a dynamic organogenic organogenic or organogenic process that's driven by neighboring tissue interactions and the patterning and balanced organogenesis of the HPB. It's difficult to model in tissue culture, obviously, because we can't make what God made in a dish, right? But can we? Maybe we can. We're getting there. I mean, I'm not promoting any kind of religious agenda here. I'm just using that kind of figuratively. But we're getting to the point where Mother Nature is no longer the, the master of these organogenic processes. I'm making that word real, organogenic, Arun. Listen up. So what did Takanori and his group there do? They used this 3D differentiation approach, right? And I think the real major innovation here is that they just did two things separately and then juxtaposed them right next to each other. They took gut spheroids, which are kind of a monotypic structure, with distinct regional identities that comprise both endoderm and mesoderm. And then they juxtapose them to recapitulate the foregut and midgut boundary in vitro. And what they got when they put these two things together was continuous patterning, dynamic morphogenesis of hepatic 
biliary and pancreatic structures. And while the transplant-derived tissues typically are dominated by mid-gut derivatives when you're working in this organ system, these HPB organoids developed into multiple organ enlages, which recapitulated a lot of morphogenic events like the invagination and branching of three different and interconnected organ structures, okay? So we're making a whole organ system from this enlage uh, that was very reminiscent of what you get when you take a, a mouse explant and put it into tissue culture. Then they took it to the next level just to add another dynamic that justifies a nature letter clearly, which was doing this genetic mutation of HES1, which uh, typically in vivo that abolishes this biliary specification potential. And just like you see in vivo, Abolishing HES1 had the similar effect on biliary specification in these HPB organoids. So, you know, soup to nuts, what they got here is a tractable, accessible model for the study of complex hum human endoderm organogenesis. But I think, you know, we read between the lines, what we're talking about is making this whole organ system in a dish by pretty much just allowing... Jesus to take the wheel, so to speak. You know, you set up these two spheroids and then start the ball rolling and what you ultimately get with no extrinsic inputs or minimal extrinsic inputs, you get this whole organ structure. So Arun, I think we're, we're on this, uh, you know, momentum is pushing first to the 3D with the organoid. Now we're getting these kind of system type organoids. It's really interesting, fascinating stuff. And the pictures in this letter are, are worth having a look at all by themselves. Yeah, the first thing that this reminded me of was uh, something that we just talked about recently, these uh, neuraloids from your guy Ali, right? These really complex neural developmental organoids that have, kind of similar to this, multiple cell types, multiple structures that are really pushing the boundary in terms of what you're able to make in a dish. You know, it's, I keep harping on this point, but I'm always so impressed as, you know, as to how far we're able to push these things just by differentiating in the dish. Yeah, and just letting them do what they do, right? I think, thanks God for this, uh, we don't have the ethical issues like we talked about with Alison Watry, or the Neuloids for that matter, which may be getting to the point of higher order processes, not just structures. With this HPB thing, no one's worried about the, the pancreas having any kind of ex vivo function all on its own. So I think we can all get behind this as a positive. You're not afraid of a zombie pancreas, a zombie <laughs> liver? Well, I ought to be. <laughs> well, when we're talking about anything, you know, IPS or pluripotent stem cell related and, you know, culturing stuff in a dish, we got to worry about mutations, right? We got to worry about mutations that may arise over the course of extended culture in a dish. And, you know, this has been a topic that's come up quite a bit recently over the last couple of years, people have been showing that, oh, maybe if you grow these things for too long in culture, they actually accumulate some mutations in oncogenic, you know, oncogenes such as P53, for example. So I'm going to talk about a paper that's uh, in cell stem cell, and it's actually titled Cancer-Related Mutations Identified in Primed and Naive Human Pluripotent Stem Cells. This is coming from Nassim Benavisti in, in Israel and also uh, Kevin Egan up at Harvard. So we know that human pluripotent stem cells are 
defined by an ability to, you know, self-renew and differentiate into all sorts of germ layers, right? And it turns them into a, you know, we know it's a unique and promising resource when it comes to disease modeling and regenerative medicine. This has been going on for close to 15 years now when it comes to the start of the IPS days and even longer before that when it comes to human embryonic stem cells, right? But in contrary to, you know, immortalized cell lines, human pluripotent stem cells are considered normal in some ways, and they maintain their genetic integrity and epigenetic landscape in vitro. But as I mentioned, there are some studies that show that these cells can acquire aberrations, even large chromosomal aneuploidies or uh, copy number variations over course of culture. And so such aberrations, which are pretty similar to those that you find in germ cell tumors, for example, can take over the culture and provide kind of a selective advantage to the cells. And they have the chance to maybe even increase the risk of tumor formation after transplantation, because of course the hope is we want to use iPS cell derivatives and pluripotent stem cell derivatives for transplantation purposes. That's a, it's a huge translational potential for these cells, right? So we found, uh, you know, back in the day, these uh, a bunch of people have found point mutations in iPS cells, and that was pretty much first suggested in 2011, when over the course of repro reprogramming from a somatic origin, these spontaneous mutations can can pop up, and whole exome sequencing has been used to kind of identify some of these mutations. And as I mentioned, TP53 or P53 was probably the the gene that was mutated the most in multiple human pluripotent stem cell lines. So these guys took it a step further. They wanted to see what else is out there, what else might be mutated in addition to P53. And they actually established a new strategy to identify some cancer-related mutations in embryonic stem cells over the course of culture. And they show that there are actually at least 22 other tumor-related genes that are uh, found in that you know are found enriched in their mutation uh, in, in mutations in iPSCs and embryonic stem cells alike, and also they found that uh, in naive or inner cell mass like uh, you know these more uh, potent pluripotent stem cells, these naive state cells, uh, they may actually have a higher propensity to have certain mutations. So how do they do it? So to identify these genes that might actually harbor cancer-related mutations during their propagation of pluripotent stem cells, they focused on those two initial human embryonic stem cell lines, which are, you know, as everybody knows, is H1 and H9, right? These have been around for, for so long. They're derived like 20 years ago from like, from back in the day, right? And so they're some of the most commonly studied human embryonic stem cell lines. And so although the whole exome sequencing of the early passage, you know, H1 and H9, didn't really reveal a lot of cancer-related mutations, the P53 mutations were identified in, in these lines after culture and selection. And so what, what these guys did was to obtain a bunch of additional RNA sequencing samples of the H1 and H9 lines to actually uh, to see like what else might be out there, what else might be mutated in these cell lines. So they looked at these uh, tier one genes in the cancer gene census. So they're uh, documented as being actively relevant to cancer. And they focused on alterations that result in a, a non-synonymous transcription or a stop codon gain. 
So they identified a lot of mutations, actually. Like I mentioned, 22 different genes were mutated, and a bunch had point mutations. T53 was actually still the most commonly mutated gene with, you know, uh, six different individual mutations in the uh, H1 and H9 lines. But they also found other mutations, like mutations in genes such as PCM1, HIF1-alpha, HIF and APC. And even when it comes to iPSCs, some of these results carried over, too. So it's, it's, you know, something that's really important. I think it's something that, you know, comes up again and again, this idea of if we want to use these cells for translational purposes, do we want to ensure that they're genetically perfect, that they're not mutated in these, you know, potential oncogenes, right? Because the worst case scenario is you transplant these cells into somebody and an oncogene is activated and all of a sudden you have like a teratoma or some sort of other malignancy um, in, you know, a portion of the body that's obviously not supposed to be uh, malignant, right? It's, it's a fear, but I think it's definitely something that we have to consider when it comes to IPS and embryonic stem cell culture. Arun, I'm going to cut to the chase here. I believe now, after all that I've read, that the idea of culturing any cell for an extended period outside of the body and then putting it back into a human, it's dead. I think it's dead. I think that this great virtue of embryonic stem cells that everyone has always been pointing toward, that they can be expanded indefinitely, therein ironically lies their fundamental flaw. And I think that it's going to ultimately come around to this, that it's too many things that we have to watch out for. But look at all these genes. How can we safeguard from passage to passage and ensure? I mean, sure, there's acceptable risk on some level, but the idea that we can preclude any kind of mutagenic or, you know, escape mutants, I think it might be a bit naive. I don't know, man. I think it really depends on your application, right? If you're, if you're worried about, and it also depends on your perspective. If you're looking at the perspective of a, of a patient, right? Someone who might not have any other options outside of, you know, some experimental IPS or ESC, related therapies, right? Would you be really worried about like a mutation in, you know, some random gene? Yeah, potentially an oncogene, sure. But if the alternative is, I don't know, like death, for example, which is kind of a morbid thing to say, sure. Um, would you be really as worried? No, you're right. Acceptable risk, like I said, but I just think that, that, you know, with, with all the potential of these cells, there's also these risks that are becoming more and more clear so it's words of caution but you know like you said there's a lot of applications that are safe and they're going to give us a great lever for uh therapy uh, and this is one of them i got a story here from lorenz's lab this is actually i think a real classy nod to uh paul greengard this is a story in cell stem cell an article that was published a couple weeks ago uh, and notably, Paul Greengard, last author who died uh, this past spring, you know, still prominently figured, still contributing post-mortem. But I think that's a credit to uh, Lorenz and his class that uh, he kept him as last. Uh, of course, he and first author Marcus Riesland made a significant contribution leading the work, but still pretty classy by Lorenz. Anyway... Getting back to the story, this is about Parkinson's disease. As you might imagine, that's Lorenz's specialty, as well as Dr. Greengard. Rest in peace. 
Um, as you know, the whole disease is based around the loss of dopaminergic neurons, and loss of those cells causes the motor symptoms of the disease. But uh, non-dopaminergic neuronal populations, such as the cortical neurons, are generally spared by the disease. So it's very specific in the substantia nigra to these cells. But nevertheless, the, the molecular basis of the disease remains pretty elusive. Uh, that said, there's a lot of genetic uh, association studies that have identified these Parkinson's-related genes. And the functions, a lot of those converge on pretty much mitochondrial function, quality control, as well as lysosomal function. And also, age, uh, as you would expect, is really the number one risk factor for Parkinson's disease and the development of symptoms. But age is also linked, as you know, with mitochondrial and lysosomal dysfunction. So it kind of raises the question, is it the mitochondrial lysosomal function downstream of age that's really leading to the development of symptoms? Um, another aside here is that we know that a huge aspect of aging that leads to the degenerative elements is the accumulation of senescent cells within tissues, right? Because senescent cells, of course, here's the other link, they have lysosomal and mitochondrial abnormalities. And also they have this kind of bystander effect where the senescent cells can damage surrounding cells through all kinds of processes. So there's been a lot of strategies focused on elimination of senescent cells, and they've worked in large part to increase both the lifespan of an individual as well as the health span to make tissues more functional um, for a longer period of time. Uh, and, you know, here's another aside that's not talked about so much. It's not just age, but in some diseases, particularly in Parkinson's disease, it's been shown that accumulation of senescent cells can also contribute to the disease state. Okay. So, cut to the study. Um, this is a focus on a Parkinson's disease-associated gene it's called special AT-rich sequence binding protein, SATB1. It's a transcriptional regulator that was just now recently identified as a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. And based on that association, the authors here, Marcus Rieslin and Lorenz, with the uh, guidance of Dr. Greengard, they uh, underwent a genetic ablation of SATB1 and showed that uh, that genetic ablation induces senescent phenotype both in human ES-derived dopaminergic neurons as well as in mice. And they show that the phenotypes that emerge are really based on cellular senescence. Um, also, they make a direct link showing that this SATB1 represses expression of the pro-senescence factor P21 specifically in dopaminergic neurons. So not only does this implicate senescence, this is a novel finding that senescence in dopaminergic neurons, because remember, neurons are post-mitotic and senescence is usually associated with mitosis. So this is a novel idea that you can have senescence emerging in post-mitotic cells. So that solidifies that and shows it's a contributing factor to the pathology of Parkinson's disease, but also next level kind of identifies maybe a druggable target in this P21 
that seems to be the the real mediator of that senescence in the dopaminergic neuron. So after death, Dr. Greengard figuring stuff out, Arun, what do you think? I think it's cool. I mean, I think, you know, like you said, there's very obvious kind of druggable target here. I really like papers where, you know, you can see that direct link between, you know, a particular transcription factor, particular gene, and, you know, a particular disease. There's really like kind of a one-to-one correlation there. I wonder if in addition to the P21, maybe even the SATB1 could be some sort of target. What if you like overexpress, I don't know, overexpress SATB1? Do you think that would work too? Yeah, special AT-rich sequence binding protein, intracellular. I'm sure maybe you could find up with a small molecule that gets in there and mucks up the works. But, you know, we're going to have to carry the torch without the input of Paul Greengard. I'm sure Lorenz is up for it, though. For sure, for sure. May he rest in peace. But, yeah, going from cell stem cell to cell stem cell, we're going to focus on the blood next, which is, of course, a topic that's near and dear to your heart, Dalen, and also near and dear to uh, Paul Burridge's heart, who's also our you know our guest for this week. He used to be a blood guy back in the day before he jumped into the heart. So the t- title of the paper is Non-Homologous Enjoining Mediated Repair of CRISPR-Cas9-Induced DNA Breaks Efficiently Corrects Mutations in uh, hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells from patients with Fanconi anemia. And you probably know a little bit more about this than I do, Dalon, when it comes to Fanconi anemia and diseases of the blood. But, you know, this is a this is a mutation, this is a disease associated with mutations in DNA repair. And individuals who have these uh, particular mutations often develop uh, bone marrow failure, and potentially have a have a potential to develop leukemias as well. So we know that allogenetic transplantation of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells is a is a decent uh, curative treatment for you know for something like this for bone marrow failure as well. But the application is kind of limited by the limited availability of HLA match donors, and you also have risk of graft versus host disease and also increase incidence of, you know, solid tumors in the long term. So correction of the patient's uh, HSPCs, you know, these human uh, hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells by gene therapy is promising, and it's, you know, a therapeutic alternative to allogeneic transplantation, which, of course, does work, and it's been working for a long time. But there is a, uh, there's a proliferative advantage associated with the correction of mutated Fanconi anemia genes. And this is a phenomenon that was first described in mosaic patients who had a secondary mutations in FA genes, Fanconi anemia genes, when these mutations actually restored the function of the mutated alleles. So it's kind of a self-correction, a self-selection in a way. So in these in these patients who have these mutations, these compensatory mutations occurring in these uh, HSPCs actually resulted in the expansion of the reverted clones, which led to the correction of FA patient uh, hematopoiesis. So mosaicism was proposed as a you know as a natural gene therapy, suggesting that you might be able to take advantage of this in a way. What if you could I don't know you could use CRISPR to actually uh, throw a wrench into the genome at the site of these uh, Fanconi anemia uh, genes, these uh, Fank A, this Fank A gene, for example, and actually mutate the uh, point mutation, mutate a mutation, so that you have a correction. 
And what you know, these folks were able to do uh, over in Spain, the group of Paulo Rio, they're actually able to use non-homologous end joining as their as their means to actually correct these mutations and introduce a selective pressure into uh, mutated uh, HSPCs and also uh, other cell types as well, so that these mutated non-homologous end-joined CRISPRed cells are actually going to selectively expand and take over the population, so that you have these, you know, better cells, these alternative cells as opposed to your mutant FA uh, FA gene cells. So how do they do it? So in their first set of experiments, they investigated using, you know, to see if the non-homologous end joining could actually be exploited to, you know, correct these Fanconi anemia cells in, in the manners that I, you know, really just described. So they inserted a, uh, a CRISPR guide that basically kind of blew up the genome right at the FANC-A gene. There is a, uh, a, a cell line that actually had a single nucleotide mutation in exon 36 of FANC-A, and this is causing the, um, the genetic mutation and the downstream phenotype. So they had a pretty efficient, you know, CRISPR editing, and they're able to basically just use non-homologous end joining. Again, not homology-directed repair, which has a DNA repair template, but just adding the CRISPR guide and your Cas9, and boom, kind of just blowing up the genome right at that spot. And then they wanted to see if these therapeutic indels worked, if they actually restored the functionality of the gene. And in fact, they did. But I think the really wild thing about this entire paper was this idea of self-selection. And it, this is sort of a, a parallel, you know, kind of uh, parallels what we had talked about earlier with the genetic mutations that are accumulating over IPS culture and embryonic stem cell culture, except this is a more advantageous uh, situation as opposed to IPS mutation, cult, you know, IPS culture mutations that accumulate over time. So here, literally, all you're doing is introducing a advantageous mutation that's going to take over the cell culture, and that's the cell line that you can potentially use for transplantation purposes. So it's really simple. It's a simple potential gene therapy, uh, you know, amenable approach for Fanconi anemia. I think it's really powerful. Yeah, I love. I mean, a couple things. One. It also reminds me of, uh, we reported on the Roundup a while back about this, how you can compensate for the hematological malignancy by there's this one disease with our condition where it's persistence of fetal globins and that in the disease condition, the fetal globins are actually, they com compensate for the disease. So you can engineer in a similar way to kind of break the system to get the fetal globins to be reactivated. and. And it's similar to, to this, what you're saying. It seems like the uh, hematopoietic system is chock full of all these hacks for treating a disease. But also, like you said, it's so much more practical and robust. It's kind of like the, all the things that we fear, you know, and watch out for and try and control against here, you're kind of using that uh, uh, to your advantage. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole approach that's based on blowing up the genome. So yeah, exploiting that negative uh, for the silver lining here, it seems to be like a therapeutic lever. Yeah. And I mean, as somebody who's done CRISPR, you know, in vitro, you know, we all know that HDR, like homology directed repair is, is usually tougher to accomplish than non-homologous end joining. So if you can, if you can really exploit NHEJ as opposed to HDR, your efficiency is going to be a lot higher of the mutations that you're inducing. And so that's, that's really powerful. 
So how long do you think before they start popping this into the clinic? I mean, what's the barrier? It seems like, uh, I guess you worry about off target. Yeah. 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 That's always the thing, right? You always have to, to make sure that, you know, the mutations that you're inducing are specific, right? You have to do your whole exome sequencing. You have to do your sequencing of your off target sites to make sure nothing else is being blown up in my own words. Right. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe we could talk a bit more about the blood, get Paul back into the blood. But, you know, he is a heart guy for now, so I guess we'll have to start with that. Before we get into that, we got a message from Stem Cell Tech here. Do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? If you do, you should use stem cell stem diff cardiomyocyte median supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells, and the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. Hello, Paul. Have a look. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stem diff dash cardio. All right, and now it's time for the interview segment of the Stem Cell Podcast for this week. And this week, we have Dr. Paul Burridge, who is an expert on all things IPS cardiomyocytes, and for better or for worse, was a mentor of mine from back in the day. Dr. Burridge is currently an assistant professor in pharmacology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He received his PhD from the University of Nottingham in human stem cell biology. And his lab currently focuses on using human iPSCs and other next-gen technologies in pharmacogenomics, disease modeling, and regenerative medicine. Currently, they're focusing on modeling chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy using iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes, endothelial cells, and fibroblasts to study drug toxicity. So, Paul, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So let's get right into it. So... I guess maybe we, if we want to start off, in your own words, why don't you expand a little bit on what your lab is currently working on? Because you're focusing on all things cardio-oncology these days. Oh, well, in a nutshell, um, stem cell pharmacogenomics. So the, the interest is in, in the lab is how does the genome or, or one's DNA uh, influence your drug response, whether that be uh, positive or negative. Um, obviously, People are, are used to chemotherapy drugs and, um, you know, understand that there's varying levels of efficacy. Um, but one thing people might not be so aware of is that um, a lot of these chemotherapy drugs, in fact, nearly all of them, um, have negative effects as well, especially to the heart. Um, so we're interested in, in how human IPS cell-derived cardiomyocytes can be used uh, to predict which patients are going to have chemotherapy-induced cardiotoxicity. And, of course, if we can predict it, then that means we know something about why it happens. And the more we know about why it happens, the better we can uh, uh, understand mechanisms and then hopefully uh, reformulate the chemotherapy drugs. They don't have the cardiotoxicity um, or even develop other cardioprotective drugs that can be given alongside the chemotherapy to protect the patient's hearts. Yeah, Paul, I, uh, we're going to dig deep into the whole cardioprotective and chemo-onc or cardio-onc thing in a second. But just because you're a heart guy, I know you've been in the blood too. You've been in stem cells, embryonic, induced pluripotent 
generally for a long time, but specifically to the heart. There's nothing like heart disease to encapsulate both the hopes and the challenges of regenerative medicine, broadly speaking. And I think anyone who's worked with, you know, pluripotent stem cells at any point in any specialty, pancreas, you know, liver, who knows, they could probably tell you the first time they saw contractile cardiomyocytes in a dish because it's one of those transformative moments, I think, when you're studying something, you, you realize the, the meta element of it. And, and we've come a long way since those early days, I think, all of us seeing the contractile cells. Uh, but we still have a real long way to go. What's your take on the, both the progress that we made as well as the pitfalls um, in the future facing cardiac regeneration, broadly speaking, but specifically, uh, you know, related to pluripotent stem cells and cardiac regeneration? Well, it's, it's multifaceted. Um, you know, one of the real pleasures of working with stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes is, is, of course, it's easy to know when you've succeeded. Um, so you would argue that's the reason why the, the cardiomyocyte differentiation protocols are you know, arguably more advanced than any other lineage, because it's easy for us to tell that we've succeeded because they, they start contracting in culture, um, which is obviously a lot of fun. Um, you know, it does lead into many other questions uh, regarding, you know, the, of course, the cells we make are an in vitro artifact. They're not like an adult cardiomyocyte, um, but they do seem to recapitulate a lot of things that are necessary um, to, uh, to, to recapitulate a patient's phenotype. Um, you know, when it comes to regenerative medicine, uh, you could also argue that this you know, more naive or less mature cardiomyocyte might be more advantageous to engrafting into the heart. Um, you know, to try and think of, we don't want a nice brick-shaped solid cardiomyocyte to be putting into the heart. We need a nice, soft, flexible cardiomyocyte that can um, be put into the location it's required um, and then to develop in situ. Um, you know, there are many labs out there that have done fantastic work in this field when it comes to regenerative medicine. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot over over the years. Um, I know uh, on your show you've had uh, some of the luminaries in the field, uh, but the complexity has been that um, if you try and engraft a human cardiomyocyte into a mouse heart, you know, the heart beats too quickly. It's uh, 400 to 500 beats per minute. Um, and, you know, it's easy to to think that that might be one of the major reasons we have this issue with engraftment. Um, and what everyone has done is they've moved through the models. You move from mouse, 400, 400 to 500 beats a minute, into rat, which is about 360, into guinea pig, which is slowing down close to how, how fast a human cardiomyocyte can go. And then, um, you know, the work has moved uh, into pigs, um, really uh, uh, lots of pioneering work done by Mike LaFlamme's group, um, the stuff done by Chuck Murray's group in primates. Um, and, you know, we're, we're starting to learn that the complexity with regenerative medicine is really that the, lots of the animal models um, are just are never going to work. Um, and of course, their immune systems are very different to a human immune system. And it's kind of led us to this point where 
to get people to really succeed in the regenerative medicine, what you really need is a, a very high level model, which is very, very expensive to do. Um, so really only, uh, there's only a few labs in the world that can really do this kind of real high level regenerative medicine type of project now. Um, which, you know, for a young PI is a little bit disappointing, really, because we can't do those kind of projects in our lab because they are just so incredibly expensive and require such a machine of so many different people, um, animal technicians and surgeons. Um, just the fact that we can make, you know, we're very confident we can make uh, hundreds of billions of very high-quality cardiomyocytes, um, we just don't have anywhere to put them because of the, the expense in all of these projects. You know, that being said, maybe it's a good thing that we just have a couple of labs in the field who are really very dedicated to this goal. You know, it is that repairing the the infarcted or failing heart is is clearly the, the, the dream of many of us in the field. Um, but it has come down to a very select few. Like we are very happy that we have made, you know, a very small contribution to, to their work. Um, but, you know, all of us are very optimistic. You know, it's it's not will it happen? It's it's just how long will it take? And, and of course, how much is it going to cost? Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I have no doubt that um, in the future, we're going to start to see uh, human IPS cell derived cardiomyocytes engrafted into the human heart. And we're going to see a recovery of function uh, because of that. Um, obviously, it's going to be therapeutically very, very expensive to start off with. But, you know, wouldn't it be great if that became, uh, you know, a normal process? Uh, Anyone who is suffering heart failure, when they're given the options of, you know, having your having a heart transplant or having a, you know, mechanical device fitted, of course, the easier option of just having some stem cells injected into your heart and having or some stem cell derived cardiomyocytes, and then seeing recovery because of that, um, you know, bearing in mind that a patient with heart failure, they only need, you know. If they can recover 10% ejection fraction, that is going to be, you know, life-changing to them. Um, they go from the, would go from this kind of highly debilitating disease to, you know, close to normal. You know, the, the heart has a lot of buffer. Um, so yeah, it's very exciting times that it's it's coming. You know, it's in the near future. We're starting to see some successful work. Yes, there's going to be issues like we've seen with, um, you know, in, inducing arrhythmias to start off with, but there. Are, you know, I'm an optimist. I like to think they're just minor technical complications that will be overcome uh, in, in the near future. So, Paul, you're a pioneer when it comes to all things IPS cardiomyocyte differentiation. You've gone from back in the day where you had these 96-well V-bottom plates to going all the way to chemically defined differentiation approaches, which you published on recently. Of course, Tina, and this is something you alluded to, maturity has always been somewhat of an issue with like all IPS-derived cell types, cardiomyocytes included. Do you really think there is a, do you think there's a magic bullet? Do you think there's something that we're just missing that we have to switch on before we be, you know, before we're able to make perfectly adult cardiomyocytes, or do you think, do you think we'll ever get there? Uh, two parts to that. Uh, firstly, in many cases, we don't need to. Um, the cells recapitulate patients' incredibly complex phenotypes and drug responses. What we have is good enough. Uh, for all the reviewers that tell me they're not mature, how can they be right? I tell them. They are right. Why do they need to be mature? Um, 
you know, when it comes to can we make the, the, the mature cardiomyocytes, it's starting to become very clear that we're just going to be combining a number of different uh, factors um, from changing uh, the metabolism in the cell. You know, it's well known that we're going to move from glycolysis to beta oxidation. That's an important part um, of, of pushing maturation. Uh, structure, you know, the cardiomyocytes, if you put them in a little brick mold, turns out they, they turn into a little brick. Uh, they're, they're very easily led. Um, you know, whether they're electrical stimulation, uh, physical stimulation, basically stretching them, um, that is what is required to make your nice brick-shaped cardiomyocyte. Um, of course, it's trying to figure out whether we really need that, potentially to model certain diseases that are more structural, um, things like hypertrophic and dilated cardiomyopathy, yes. But um, for a lot of these drug responses, it turns out you're, you know, we're really, really hitting them with a sledgehammer, especially uh, when it comes to chemotherapy. Um, so we are recapitulating these patient-specific phenotypes. So it does give us a lot of confidence that what we have is uh, you know, fit for purpose. As soon as you start to add on these other factors, you know, you stretch the cells, you stimulate them, you change their media, uh, you know, you're adding complexity into the experiment. And as you know, I am someone who <laughs> abhors complexity. Mm -hmm. I think everything can be distilled down to its most simplistic form. And simple means reproducible, which means high quality data. So there are lots of factors to go together. I think the tool we have now is certainly fit for purpose for many many different aspects of the work we do yeah and that's the that's the question right it's what's the application uh you know if we're going to be putting it into people it's one thing but if we're using it for modeling it's another and whether or not we're going to put them into patients in the near term there's a lot they can tell us about of course the genetic bases of cardiovascular disease i know there's some kind of you know disease modeling that's been done in certain syndromes um, and of course, you work really heavily on the cardio-oncology angle. We're going to come back to that. But more uh, generally speaking, do the patient cardiomyocytes, is this idea of modeling using patient-specific cardiomyocytes, does that have any value for kind of the precision or patient-specific approaches to garden variety cardiovascular disease, like, you know, infarct or atherosclerotic Cath, uh, cardiovascular disease, or is the disease modeling mostly about like syndromic heart disease related to genetics? Um, it's, it's a multifaceted answer to that. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll tell you the story of how we got into doxorubicin cardiotoxicity. Um, you know, the reason we did that was because. Um, you know, I was interested in what can we do with these with these cells and heart failure. And of course, it doesn't make any sense to make IPS cells from a patient with heart failure and someone without um, and say that they're going to model that disease. So the reason we got into the chemotherapy cardiotoxicity all came back to, you know, if, if you Google drug-induced cardiomyopathy, the first thing you're going to find is Dr. Rubicin. And, uh, you know, our thought process wasn't a lot different from that many years ago. Um, so it's all about, you know, the aspects when it comes to if we want to use um, IPS cells to model, model something like you know, heart failure, then we have to invent a model that, that induces heart failure 
in a dish, so our in vitro model of heart failure. So just because you got it from a patient that has heart failure, clearly that's not going to be a good model. Um, you know, atherosclerosis is is something we do work on in the lab. There are, you know, is drug-induced atherosclerosis as well. Um, those kind of multifaceted disease, there's a lot of different cell types involved in, in atherosclerosis. Um, but, you know, much like we've done with, you know, the heart, it, you know, it turns out actually there is one effector cell type. So those things can be modeled, but, you know, as you'll hear a lot from me, it has to be simplified. It has to be broken down into a much more manageable model because I, you know, I understand scientists love complexity, but, you know, everything can be distilled. Um, to start off with, we really need to know the basics of it, and then you can add on to that. But, you know, once you show that one patient's endothelial cells behave differently to another patient's endothelial cells, then you do have a model that, as, as long as you're looking at your application, um, it's, it's, it's good enough. Um, so in many ways, I think uh, the answer to the question of, you know, how can we you study these, you know, diseases of aging like heart failure and atherosclerosis. You know, I am hoping that what we learn from the drug-induced varieties is going to inform us long-term about some of those mechanisms, um, and at the very least, help us develop the model. Uh, once we can show that we have a drug-induced version and we we see what happens, then we can start to look at, you know, other methodologies of inducing it um, and seeing how kind of accurately that that recapitulates the, the phenotypes we're expecting. So kind of on that topic of cardio-oncology, it's something that you've been involved with in the last few years. You know, you had a, a Nature Medicine paper come out a couple years ago utilizing iPS-derived cardiomyocytes to look at doxorubicin cardiotoxicity. And, you know, doxorubicin has been a pretty big focus in your lab. And there's plenty of, well, there, there's a few drugs out there that have been shown to modestly protect against doxorubicin toxicity but with, you know, mixed success. So there's definitely an interest in developing new cardioprotective agents for sure. So could you talk a little bit about what your lab is doing to look at those novel cardioprotection strategies against doxorubicin? Um, so, of course, we're looking into this very heavily. Uh, we've done a lot of work. Um, so there is only one F-approved drug to stop doxorubicin cardiotoxicity, um, dexrazoxin, and... It turns out that drug is actually, it's, it's basically, a, it's a very similar drug to doxorubicin. Um, and it's been unclear whether or not that also has cardiotoxicity itself. And indeed, there's even some, some data suggesting that the cardioprotectant might actually uh, cause leukemia. So, so there's, some, there's some real issues with, with the existing methodologies. Um, it is very difficult to prove in a clinical trial that a drug is cardioprotective. You know, the cardiotoxicity, um, depending on the dose, it averages, it's only about 8% of the population are going to experience that. And of course, there's a huge genomic component that actually controls whether or not they're likely to have the toxicity. So when you're trying to find a drug that prevents it, you have to, you have to know a lot about all of these other factors that are involved. Um, we've taken two different approaches. Uh, one is really progressing with um, you know, as you mentioned, our, our Nature our Medicine paper showed that the iPS cells recapitulate the phenotype. Now, that tells us uh, pretty confidently that, that it means the drug response is, is genomic in nature. There is, there's, the DNA is controlling the, the variance between the patients. Um, so once you've done that, you can then 
kind of further study that and, and figure out exactly what are the genes or the, the variants that are different between the patients that had cardiotoxicity and those that didn't. And that will, you identify a variant that tells you the gene and, you know, hopefully that gene is something that um, us people in pharmacology would describe as a druggable target. Um, and then you can start to, to really probe um, and discover cardioprotectants from that angle. Um, and actually in our experience, the people who have a variant that predisposes them to toxicity um, that's resulted in us discovering a drug, it turns out that drug actually works in everybody, um, whether or not you have the variant. So it's really the, the genomics identified the gene and it's the gene that, that led us to a pathway that we can then uh, start to modulate for cardioprotection. Um, we have screened every cardioprotectant that's ever been in the literature or even might possibly be be doing something. And, um, you know, in our experience and in our model, they have not been very impressive at all. Um, you know, in our Nature Medicine paper, we did show dextrazoxin actually causes a little bit of toxicity in the IPS cell model. Um, you know, we're, you're leaning into the limitations that, you know, this is some of these drugs may be involved in how the heart deals with the insult and, and recovery from it, which, you know, a lot of people have done clinical trials with statins, um, which is the, the heart failure docs kind of go-to uh, drugs for, for, for trying to help people recover from uh, drug-induced heart failure. Um, but it's a very different question. We're very much interested in how can you protect the heart um, because the reality is once you've had that insult, um, your heart failure is progressive, sadly, and um, there's there's no good way at the moment to, to be able to reverse that. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really happy with the work we've been doing. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in the quagmire of publication on, on, on two different drugs that we've discovered that we think are, are pretty good targets. Um, one, a uh, uh, novel compound and the other a, a nice drug repurposing uh, a common drug that already exists um, and I think uh, in both cases they're going to be um, you know I feel as a basic scientist as a PhD that if, if people are willing to do clinical trials looking at whether statins prevent the toxicity which they have all been <laughs> negative so far no success lots of money spent lots of time used um, then hopefully that they're going to um, be willing to, to look at um, a little bit of drug repurposing that we're doing. Like I say, the studies are difficult um, because of the percentage of people who actually have the cardiotoxicity is low, but with a with a decent sized study, and of course, doxorubicin is used very, very commonly. Um, you can get a lot of patients into these trials. So uh, I think, you know, it's it's looking up, it's looking a little more exciting, but when it comes to the existing drugs, certainly in our model, uh, not very impressive. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I work uh, in my own research with FERTO protection, which is, you know, mitigating the gonadotoxic effects of chemo on egg supply in women I'm focused on. Um, and I, I always think it's ironic that there's this whole field of study that's emerged to deal with the chemo complications, the iatrogenic complications as therapies now developing for the therapies right um and it leads me to thinking about ips cells and of course you know we're being really careful 
Uh, but in Japan in particular and other places, the, there's, these cells are going into patients, IPS and, and you know, ES-derived cells. Uh, and the cynic in me says that no matter how careful we are, there's always something that slips through eventually, yes? So in your view, not to say that it will or will not happen, but what would you say, as someone who's, you know, paid close attention to the field and is close to cl the clinic, at least in your pharmacokinetics um, studies uh, or pharmacotherapeutic, uh, what do you think is a plausible iatrogenic complication that could emerge from early trials with IPS or ES-derived cells, you know, in the negative? And, and what's the best case? What's the best case scenario for how we usher these cell-based therapies into the clinic? Um, you know, first of all, a lot of the studies that have been done with IPS cell, derived cells, the major concern was that there will be some IPS cells left over and you will be giving these patients a teratocarcinoma um, or, you know, there will be some real issues. Um, you know, work from, from Joe Wu's lab from many years ago showed that you need a lot of IPS cells in there um, to be able to cause any kind of tumor. So actually, I, uh, I personally feel that that concern is a little bit, uh, a little bit, um, there's too much concern there, you know, really, uh, and the work that's been done in the past, you know, the work that was done by Geron and all the leg all the companies ever since then, when it comes to things like, um, you know, putting, putting neurons into the spine, uh, there's never really been any, you know, real safety concerns um, when it comes to that side of things. You know, I'm a basic scientist. That's, you know, I'm going to say from a basic scientist perspective, um, the cells, the the iPS cell derived cells are going to be safe when it comes to that. Um, you know, of course, if, if I was having them put in myself, I would want all of this, you know, high quality testing to be done. <laughs> I'm just saying that, um, you know, there are there are going to be much more kind of complex concerns than that. You know, um, it does look like iPS cell derived cells are immunoprivileged. Um, so when it comes to the sorts of diseases we used to worry about, like graft versus host. Um, you know, particularly if you're going to be um, making iPS cell derived hematopoietic stem cells, it would seem that um, there are some concerns on that side of things. Um, you know, the honest answer is the patients these are going to be going into, especially when you're considering um, iPS cell derived cardiomyocytes, we, the first patient to be getting those cells is going to be someone who, who already has an assist device fitted, such as a left ventricular assist device. They will be putting iPS cell-derived cardiomyocytes into the heart, and then, you know, months or weeks or even days later, that patient is going to be having their heart taken out and having a heart transplant. And the reason why that needs to be done is because we're scientists. We want to know how well they engrafted. We want that heart out. Um, so. You know, there are going to be many questions answered in, in that type of patient. Um, of course, that's not equivalent to a patient who's had a, a heart attack or is in late stage heart failure. But that is going to be the first experiment. So I think, uh, you know, the, the safety, um, the, the real concern is, you know, as work by Chuck Murray has been very clearly, you know, 
looking into is things like arrhythmia from the cardiomyocytes in grafting, which uh, is an issue but seems to be um, short term. Of course, you know, no one wants to go through that electrical storm that they're going to have for three or four weeks. Um, but uh, I think there will be concerns. Every different tissue that we're going to be putting in, um, that there's going to be individual issues. But I, I don't think there's going to be uh, an overall issue. There's not going to be this this kind of general concern just because they're iPS cell derived. Hmm. So moving on to a bit of a technical note, and I think you knew I was going to get into this. You're all about chemically defined media. This is kind of your thing. You've drill this into my head. You've drilled in the benefits of chemically defined media after working with you for a few years in Joe Wu's lab. So I've got to ask, what's the next big thing when it comes to chemically defined media and its applications? And this might make you disown me as a student. Are there still some applications where FBS and serum is truly, you know, beneficial, beneficial and irreplaceable? Um, I mean, uh, you know the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> If it can be chemically defined, then it should be chemically defined. You know, I uh, I once had a colleague tell me describe knockout serum replacement KSR, which used to be used in the human ES media. He described it as a wonderful goo of loveliness, <laughs> and I tell you what, I never forgot those words because as a scientist, it made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. You know, we we it shouldn't be green fingered. It shouldn't be this. You know, we shouldn't be accepting of complexity. We should we should be fighting against it. You know, the the particularly when it comes to differentiation media and you know pluripotent cell media, we get to a point where everything is testable, and um, which means we can do better. Uh, so in every case, we should do better. Um, if 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 I had my own way, I would take every differentiation. I would make them all chemically defined. So, you know, sadly, we don't have the skills with every different cell type. But um, you know, things should be simple. Uh, they should be controllable. And um, you know, if you're relying on FBS, then that's a variable that is is difficult difficult to control. Now, that doesn't mean it's it's, it's okay as a stopgap. Um, and there are you know. There are mesenchymal stem cell products that have a culture, a cultured in FBS that go into people. Like it's, it can be GMP compliant, so it's okay. But if you can do better, you should. Um, you know, we should simplify things, and it really comes down to um, you. You may know this, but we, uh, you know, we've recently published a paper. Uh, well, at least we have it on BioArchive at the moment, where. We completely dismantled E8 media because I felt like they'd done a nice job and they'd got us to a point where it was functional, but it wasn't finished. You know, more could be done. Like it could be better, it could be simpler. We could know more about, you know, what is optimal in that. You know, when you're developing a media, you have to make compromises. You have to say, I'm going to use 10 of this because that's what's always been used and I want to concentrate on more important things. Now, what that means is people like me can come along later on and say, maybe 10 is not right. Um, once we know everything else is correct, you know, it, it's all, um, it is a little circular, you know, you do need to move on. Um, so yes, you know, we, just like we had done with the, the cardiac differentiation, and I will tell you, you know, our cardiac differentiation now, we, <laughs> someone recently referred to us as, as you know, the, the stem cell police, because we look at everybody's <laughs> protocol, we are always testing it, 
I am I would be if I found one thing that was one percent better, I would I would take it on board um, because we're always looking to make it better because our scale is so high. Um, so when it came to the pluripotency media, um, yeah, we thought we'd we'd take a look and. Uh, you know, it's one of those situations that once you're under the hood, you, you start to mess around a little bit. And um, there was things we could modify. Um, you know, a good example in that scenario is, you know, in E8, the major cost is this growth factor, FGF2. Um, we started to make it in-house. And once you're, once you're making your own plasmid, you start to think, well, like, I could make some tweaks in here. Um, we added a few additional point mutations. You know, there's... Uh, information we got from the literature. So now we have a new FGF2 called FGF2G3, which is is very very temperature stable for more than for more than three weeks. It's temperature stable compared to usually 24 hours, and you know now that's standard practice. It doesn't doesn't cost us anything. You know we made some tweaks. Uh, it's all freely available on AdGene. You know this is not we're not trying to make anybody any money out of this. It's all um, and it all leads into you know, when I was a graduate student in the UK, we had a very, very limited budget. It was about £5,000 a year, which compared to, you know, the budget in American labs, it's, it's very, very different. And the idea that, you know, we, the way we culture cells now, if they were cultured in a commercial media, that would have lasted about a month. And that would have been all of my experiments done. And that would have been the end of my PhD. Um, but by making changes and basically eliminating these costs we you know there's there's a bit of societal benefit there you know that means everybody can culture their cells very very cheaply and hopefully do more experiments to get better quality data and you know there'd be a real advantage to the field from that perspective um so we are hoping with our our new media which we, we jokingly refer to as B8. It, don't make an acronym for a paper because it sticks. Uh, it, was, it was better eight and it kind of stuck. So it's B8 now. Um, and it's not about getting to this final formula that is, you know, the title of the paper is negligible cost human IPS cell culture. Um, it's about we have made it clear how anybody could make modifications to it. We've told everybody where we got to with, with our formula, but we understand that everything is just a step further forwards and someone else undoubtedly is going to take where we are and make further modifications and hopefully you know as a whole the field can move on you know if if, if stem cell culture costs nothing that would mean every not just every stem cell lab but every lab could culture stem cells eliminating this major cost i would i'm a fan of stem cells you know and the model like wouldn't it be great if every lab used stem cells like like they do with pcr at the moment um, it was just the technique that you use to test whether a gene does anything. I, I think that would be really cool. So I, I'd like to, you know, contribute a little bit to that. You've contributed a lot, although I have to say, you can have your defined media. I will take a wonderful goo of loveliness any day. It just sounds so good. <laughs> um, but seriously, you know, you're talking about, you know, IPS, ESLs for the masses, and and I think you're really do, doing a good turn there. But also, you talked about the bioarchive. That's all about accessibility, equal accessibility, acceleration of scientific advance. Um, it seems to me while there have been some like initial hesitation, people worried about you know spoiling their story or losing the resonance because they you know it's it's auto scoop so to speak. 
Um, I find that now there's many papers that have been appearing on the bioarchive and then ultimately being published in really high impact journals. Uh, you know, I know Anna Katerina Hadjitanak has had a big nature story. I'm sure your story is about to splash in a big journal. Do you think the archive is working, bioarchive is working toward the intended goal? What is that goal exactly, in your view? Um, you know, I, I think it fits in the bigger picture that um, it, it's clear to all of us that eventually, you know, all of these journals are going to go to open source. Um, and I, you know, I am an associate editor for a big journal from a family that used to not be open source. And there was a discussion when this journal was started, should it be open source? You know, and the answer is yes, of course it should be. Like there's, there's no, the, having that access like that, you know, is, of course that's gonna be the way it moves forward. Um, and I feel in some cases, BioArchive can, can push that forwards. Um, you know, there is a limitation that you're, you're putting your, you know, unpeer reviewed, uh, you know, version of your paper that, you know, maybe there's going to be a lot of things changed over time. But um, I think, you know, and, and of course, with this story, you know, we put it in an open access journal anyway. Um, that, that was part of the game. Uh, it's if you're going to if you're going to concentrate on, you know, the media for the masses, then you need to make it free to be able to read the paper to be free as well. Um, yeah, the experience for us was a little mixed. Uh, we certainly had a lot of people uh, almost immediately emailing me saying, oh, did you use three or four millimolar of this? Which was great for me because that's something, you know, maybe this, that meant the method wasn't quite clear enough and I need I could straighten that out. Um, so there are, there are a few extra lines in the paper. So I, I would like to thank everybody who's emailed me to, you know, with the details of the minutiae of the protocol. Um, you know, the other side of it is there are types of science that, um, you know, especially in this case, is quite hard to review because um, the reviewers for big journals are more, more senior scientists and they're just not going to have the familiarity with modern IPS cell culture methodologies um, because they haven't been hands on with these. So. I was aware with that story that we were going to suffer from, uh, you know, potentially the reviewers, you know, saying, why do you need this? Why don't you just buy it? And, you know, I'm, because they, they can do that. Um, yeah. Uh, but they're not a young lab, you know, potentially uh, in, in a different country that doesn't have the, the resources to be able to do this. And you know, for many people, this question is not important. You just buy the media and you culture your stem cells and you forget about it. And there are, you know, bigger things to be looking at. Um, so, yeah, the review process for a paper like that is always going to be a little a little tough. Um, so by having it on BioArchive, and of course, then you're, you know, you've got a captive audience, the people who are emailing you, they, they love it already. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in contact with you. Mm. Um, so it is it is it is nice to get them that direct relationship and um, you know have people using it immediately. You know, within weeks we were getting people telling us you know they they'd gone through all of you know that's a bit of a process to go through to start making your own recombinant proteins. It's not uh, it's not particularly easy. Um, we've tried to make it as easy as possible, 
Um, the whole protocol was built by a master student uh, with that intent. Um, but yeah, I think um, the use of bioarchive really depends on the type of story that you have and and you know how scoopable it is. There are you know some very senior less scrupulous characters and that's how they get some of their ideas um so you, you do have to be careful of that especially if you're a younger lab and you just don't have the means or the manpower um potentially to do the corrections to your own paper uh i think the publishing world has changed a little bit um more you know it's more common now to instead of having major corrections it's it's major corrections with de novo resubmission so what i would consider a rejection and it's it's hard for us to um you know read those kind of comments and be like oh okay so that means i'll send it back um you know and it can be a slow process uh you know and and part of the other issue of bioarchive is uh, your your paper's out there. You're kind of done with it. So to try and come back and do corrections at that stage does become a little more complex. So it's definitely not a singular answer. And I don't think I would use bioarchive for every single paper. You know, we have some things, you know, particularly, you know, when they're associated with our R01s and things where we just have to be very, very careful. But um, projects that are, are fun and for the whole, um, yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. I'm still learning too. I think everybody is. Uh, you know, the more we do, the the better. Um, but yeah, I I recommend everybody try it at least. Um, I think it should be the way forward. I mean, I it, if it was made mandatory, I, I'd be happy with it. Um, no problem. Hmm. So, Paul, you're all about stem cells for the masses and making media cheap and easy to make and chemically defined differentiation approaches. A lot of this kind of dovetails all together into the inevitable industrialization of cell culture, right? So scalability is kind of the big thing. We want to make as many stem cells, as many cardiomyocytes as we possibly can, in part to, to meet potential future clinical demand. So where do you think we are when it comes to scalability? And ultimately, what do you think is the future of cell culture? Um, you know, we are still at lab scale. Uh, we have been thinking about, you know, very, very large scale um, in depth for the last year or so. and. You know, our B8 media, you know, depending on exactly how you make it, is down to, let's say, $10 a liter. Um, that's still logarithmically too high. Uh, you need to be getting that cost down to, you know, the cost of water. Um, more needs to be done. Uh, of course, as you scale, there are some efficiencies that come along with that. As soon as you go and buy yourself a ton of an amino acid that you, you know, then you're really starting to, to get into those kind of efficiencies. Um, I think it's coming, and I think the, the more we understand about the media and what is necessary, where compromises can be made, which is one of the things we delve into in this paper. We, we say this is optimal, but and we actually, at the end, say this is what we use because we, we know the level of compromise you can have. Um, yeah, I think it's it's very exciting times as we, even as we move beyond um, you know, medical applications of, of, of iPS cells, there are many other applications as well that are gonna require very, very large scale. Um, and I think we can do a little more with the media, um, but one of the things we really need to work on and kind of one of the things I'm thinking more and more about is, is density. 
which does leave much lead into more of the bioengineering side of things. Um, how can we densify our stem cell culture and our differentiations? Um, you know, our incubators are full. Um, you know, we have 10 of them and they're full. Uh, you know, there's, there becomes, a, you know, there's a reality. We just, we need to densify, um, particularly if we want to do very, very large scale differentiations. And I think that's going to be a real challenge, which really hasn't been looked at in any way. Um, but, you know, exciting times. Yeah, Paul, exciting times. Uh, I, I think uh, we're getting there, like you say, and uh, moving in a, in a, industrial direction and uh you're leading the way so thanks for that and thanks for talking to us now we just want to get into a couple of non-scientific questions uh if you don't mind our science peripheral let's say um first of those is can you tell us about a non-science book or loosely science i know scientists have a hard time reading a book that's not kind of peripheral to science at least tell us about a book that you've read or are reading that you would recommend well, I, to our audience? A book I recently, yeah, we, a lot of us don't get time to really finish a book. I have definitely not finished a lot of books over the last many years. Um, but I, I did read a book recently that I was really, uh, that I, I read a book in two days, which I haven't done for, for a decade. Um, and I just blew through this book and it was called, and it is vaguely science related, um, but you know, more societal as well, uh, called The Radium Girls by uh, Kate Moore. And this is about, um, you know, these uh, these these women who were painting the numbers on, you know, watches and uh, dipping the paintbrushes into their into radium and then dipping it in their mouths to give a point on the paintbrush. And of course, then they suffer from all of these, you know, horrible diseases where their jaw basically disintegrates. And you know, the fascinating part about that book was um, just, you know, there's. Um, the company in charge, you know, United Radium, um, just how little they cared. They just, they worked so hard to ignore, you know, all of these girls dying and having these kind of horrific cancers. And, uh, you know, it was just such an eye-opening story. I, I hope times are different now. Um, but, but reading about a situation where uh, the scientific evidence was very, very clear, um, but yet those in charge were, you know, 100 percent ignoring it and, uh, you know, willfully ignoring it, you know, of course, has some parallels with the modern day world. But I, I, I just I found the story, you know, particularly in part because it's, it's set here in Illinois. Um, you know, just the, the depth of the story, the writing was very, very, um, uh, very digestible. Um, and, uh, you know. The idea that it's not a unique situation, it's an extreme, but uh, this, you know, this is where society is. You know, we're all trying to do work so hard to make things better for, for society in general. But yeah, there's a couple of people out there who are really pulling in the opposite direction. Um, and <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's frustrating, isn't it? Um, yeah, it yeah, reminds I, me of uh, modern day, the Purdue Pharma. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it, but this is an old story, right? And we keep telling the story. We keep living the story. Yeah, indeed. You know, it's, it's it, all we can do is is read about it. What what can we do? Um, it is definitely uh, something I'm sure is on, on a lot of people's minds. So that's something I'm definitely going to have to check out, Paul. Um, so how about your scientific heroes? Who are your greatest scientific heroes? I, I think I've already alluded to a couple of them. Um, 
you know, for me, it's the people who have been in my field since before my time um, and are still active scientists and have really led the way. Um, you know, I think some examples are Christine Mummery, um, who who's has, has a lab in the Netherlands, uh, has always, you know, done high quality work and really led some of these ideas. Um, Clearly, Chuck Murray, who I've mentioned, I didn't know I was so into uh, many times. <laughs> um, just, you know, high quality data, consistent publications really has, you know, uh, he has his own thing. Um, and I, you know, I, I love that. That's that's his thing that he's leading the leading the world at and, um, you know, has been doing it for a very, very long time. You know, he had well, he had this the second ever, you know, directed cardiac differentiation protocol uh, publication and has really been pushing this ever since. And, you know, and, and also a really nice guy, um, you know, no kind of politics and uh, all the other things that are associated with it. I think it's um, it's very hard in science to be that consistent for that long. Um, and, and come out of it and not be too jaded. Uh, but yeah, very, you know, the people in your field who you see doing this quality work, you know, over and over and over, um, you know, they really build this long history. And, you know, having my own lab, I see that, you know, you have many people in your group and maintaining the consistent quality and output uh, is a hard task. There's, there's a lot of different facets to it. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, the cardiac regenerative medicine side, it's really going to come down to just a few key players. And um, I think we already know who they are. I mean, that's going to be the exciting part. These are going to be the people who are going to have that paper in nature where they say, you know, we've, we've put these cells into someone and this is what happened. Uh, it's, it's coming. It's really soon. Um, you know, and, um, you know, thinking about Christine's work, you know, this work we do on drugs and iPS cell cardiomyocytes it is there's a lot of things that you know we needed to push ahead we needed someone to just try it first you know there were there were things done when the model wasn't ready but you know now the models really you know we can make these beautiful pure cardiomyocytes and um, there's, there's things that can be done now and uh, you know we we have a clue of how to do them and I think um, the work out of Christine's lab is really pushed forwards with with that um you know I, i'm a fan of anybody who wants to work on stem cells to be honest <laughs> <laughs> yeah well those are uh, two living legends both of whom i will say have been on the podcast and i think uh we've got perhaps a living legend budding amongst us on this episode dr burridge thank you for joining us again this has been a lot of fun this chat and really eye-opening thanks for giving us a handle on the whole field about specifically this cardio-oncology angle. It's really exciting to hear about. Thanks again. Well, thanks for having me. I've, I've truly enjoyed it. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at stem cell podcast or by email at info at stem with feedback or to suggest guests thanks again for joining us for this episode we'll be back in a couple weeks with a great one for you once again